Billy Miller. Hi, I'm Seth Coe. I'm Taylor Matthews. Hello, I'm Jonathan Magnew. Hi, it's Grant Hackett here. Hi, I'm Sharon Spence from the Wallaroo. I'm Azuma Nelson. I'm Gasserine and you're listening to Not the British. Yes, you are indeed listening to another podcast of Not The Footy Show. It's good to be back, and as usual, we've got a really special guest for you today. Have you ever read a sports cartoon, and have you ever wondered how somebody becomes a cartoonist? Well, we're catching up with the Guardian's David Squires on this show, and I hope you find it really interesting. Certainly, I enjoyed catching up with him. Anyway, I'm Ashley Morrison. And I'm John Lee. Good to see you, John. And indeed, it is. Well, it's been happening since we last. It has, and I should just mention, of course, David Squires, an avid Swindon Town fan, just like myself. So, not only how do you become a cartoonist, how do you become a sports cartoonist? Exactly. Yeah, there's not many of them these days. No, cartoonists used to be almost celebrities, didn't they? At one stage. Oh yeah, they had books every year would come out with their compilation over a year. But we're living in the world of memes now, actually. Yeah, yeah. (laughs) (laughs) There's probably a few of me out there somewhere. (laughs) Star Wars once. Is that where you got the big leash with Leia on the end of it? <laughs> I don't know. One? I haven't seen that one. So. Okay. Am I starting us? Yeah, go on. Look, I, I thought it's, I know it's been in a lot of media coverage lately, is the old man-cadding. Oh, yes. And uh, it's all kind of come to the service because of the Indian bowler Deepti Sharma running out Charlie Dean at the non-striker's end in to basically wrap up a clean sweep for India in their series against England. Before you can go on, one point that maybe everybody's missed is um, this it, a whole thing has captured the whole cricket world, right? Absolutely. Yeah, it's from a woman's game. It is. Now, I don't know if this might have passed people by, but has, has an incident in a, in a female game had this much traction amongst a sporting... Probably you know, not for a while. I can't think of one. You know one. what I mean? The big yeah. stories tend to be the men's game, the men, but this has absolutely dominated the cricket world. It has, and and I mean, look. First of all, I wanted to just touch on the fact that you know it's called a mancad after um, Vinu Mancad, the Indian international, ran out Bill Brown in the series in 1947-48. Now, the th- interesting thing about this is Man- Vinu Mancad warned Brown. It was the first time that he did it. And in the second test, he ran him out the same way again. And uh, Bill Brown actually admitted that he was at fault and that, you know, there was nothing wrong with the decision. Don Bradman, who was the captain in that test match, he actually defended the bowler here. And I'll quote, For the life of me, I can't understand why the press questioned this sportsmanship. The laws of cricket make it quite clear that the non-striker must keep within his ground until the ball has been delivered. By backing up too far and too, or too early, the non-striker is obviously gaining an unfair advantage. Yep, I would agree And that was that. the great Sir Donald wrote that back then. Now, of course, people have gone against, have always said, and, and it's interesting, Mike Brearley has written in his book, The Spirit of Cricket, he said, why are we calling it a mancad? If you think about it, it should have been called a brown because brown was the one that was trying to steal the run. Mancad's just followed the laws and has run him out as they said he could. And didn't didn't he some years later mancad say I'm I'm not very happy about it being called yeah, mancad? He, he has, which yeah. I find is even is really sad because I understand that theory that but it should he should be the one celebrated for doing it. We shouldn't be purely yeah. Uh, Pillaring him, we should be going. 
That's pretty clever, mate. No one thought of that in the whole history of cricket before you. Well, well th- th- this is the sad thing because that's what everybody remembers him for. And, I mean, Brearley in his book touched on the fact that in 1952, Vinu Mankad took 12 wickets in India's first ever victory over England at Madras. And later in the same year at Lords, he took five wickets in England's first innings and scored 184 in India's second. So he could play. Yeah. Now, Ian Botham broke the record. Until Ian Botham broke the record, he took 100 wickets in 1,000 runs in fewer tests than anyone else. So he was some player. And it's kind of sad, and you can understand why he's upset that he is being judged on that one action. And I think the reason is everyone sort of said, oh, it's in the spirit of the game, you shouldn't do that. But if the player's cheating and leaving their ground... But where, where is it written that's in, in, not in the spirit of the game? Where does that occur in the laws? Well, it doesn't. Do, do, do the laws mention this is the spirit of well, the game? Well, they now do, because they put, I forget how many years ago, they put it. a preamble in it. Yeah, which, you know. But it's interesting here. So here is the, the law that was has been altered slightly basically due in many parts to the advent of T20 because we're seeing players trying to steal runs quicker. They're fitter, faster, trying to get between the wickets. And it now states, law 41.16 states, if the non-striker is out of his or her ground at any time from the moment the ball comes into play until the instant when the bowler would normally have been expected to release the ball, the non-striker is liable to be run out. So that's basically from the top of your mark. When you start your run, would that be... The moment is defined as being the highest point in the bowler's uh, action. So between when you start your run-up and the bloke and the bowler releases the ball, you've got to be in your crease. Yeah. Okay, fair enough. We'll just... So, I mean, this is the thing, and I mean, it's been interesting because Harsha Bogle's got really upset about it and saying that all the media hype about it. We're in Australia, and he's saying it's only the English that are complaining. But I think there's a lot of people are just discussing it. I don't think there was anything wrong with what Deepti Sharma did, to be honest. Um, I've watched it back, and, and, you know, the batsman steps out of the crease before that point. So, you know, it may not have been in the spirit of the game, but was it within the laws of now, the game? And I've I think people, it was. I've heard people saying that they think it was the wrong decision because... Um, the bowler had gone past the point of the delivery. Now, the way I see it is the bowler, she gets her arm so at, up to the highest point, yeah. but the biggest question I would have is, did she ever have any intention in delivering it? Well, that's, is that, So, therefore, was she trying to deceive the non-striker? And then, But I still think when I've watched it back and I've watched it a few times, I still think the non-striker leaves the crease before that time, before the arm has reached the highest point, which to me then says that Sharma was entitled to do what she did. Yeah, um, I think if you're going to man-cab someone, you're doing it intentionally. Yeah, and you've obviously seen them leaving the crease yeah, ahead or, of time. Or you thought you have. Yeah, um, or someone's made you aware of it. Maybe your mid-on or mid-off yeah, has told yeah, you. Yeah. Now, I, I would agree that at the highest point, where, the per, where, where your arm's at the highest point as you're bowling, is generally where the release point is, maybe a bit past, slightly past the perpendicular. But it's going to be up there. So if your bat is in the ground at that highest point, you should be counted as being in. Yep. Now, 
if that person continues down and then swings through and knocks your stumps over and you've taken your bat out of the crease... Yeah, then that should be that, not out. That should be yeah, not out. I totally agree. So it, it all comes down to the highest point, whether your bat's in the, or your foot or whatever it happens to be that you're grounded with. Now, the interesting thing and is... And now we've got, now we've got video. It's, that's as simple as a run-out decision, I would think. Well, it's very interesting you say that because in Mike Brilly's book, he talks about he was on a panel of ex-players, current players, umpires that were looking at this particular thing because man-canning had become a lot more prevalent with the T20 game, etc., and there was no qualms about doing it anymore. And Rod, the late Rod Marsh, who was on this panel, who was on this committee, um, he actually put forward, and I thought this was really interesting because he was saying, if we can go back now and a batsman is not dismissed because you've got to check whether the bowler's gone over the front line, he goes, we should look at this and any runs that are scored from any delivery, if the non-striker's left his crease early, should not count. That's a, that's an interesting way of putting it. That's a very interesting <laughs> I mean, it would mean they'd be referring a heck of a lot. Well, they would. But it you'd would have be... To check it, you'd have to check every delivery that a run was scored. Yeah. But I think they check most deliveries now for the foot anyway. So it would, you'd think it would be the same shot. So it's actually <laughs> yes. not going to mean you're going to have to watch extra footage. Um, yeah, it would be in the same shot, wouldn't it? You'd be able to tell from the two things from the one shot. Yeah, and I mean, yeah. the argument has been that cricket is so dominated by bat over ball. You know, decisions go usually in favour of the batsman. And so this one would be a nice one, a return of it to the bowler. Or has I heard another suggestion that, um, say, the batsman, or the bowler does try the man-cat, and they go back and review it, and if the batsman's in, it should be a no-ball. Yeah, I agree with that. Because technically, I suppose it is. Yeah, I don't have a problem with that. But I think the man-cat should stay. I don't think that they, there's another... The brown. Ball. We, I think it should be oh, renamed. The brown. I don't, I don't know that there's an alternative. The, the alternative is just let the batsman might as well stand at the halfway mark. Might as well go and stand down the other crease and let him run up there, you know what I mean? Well, well it's, it's interesting. Sort of, you've got I mean, to have some mechanism to keep that person at that end. Yeah, I mean, the inter- there's a couple of interesting things I wanted to just touch on there as well. So if you go back, John, it's been around a long, long time. The first recorded batsman to be dismissed in such a way, I know we've got to say batter, but this was a man, so I'm going to call him batsman. Uh, in first-class cricket was George Bainant, I hope I've said his name right, of Sussex in 1835, oh, wow. and the bowler was Thomas Barker. Now you so talk- it should be called a Barker. <laughs> <laughs> I got barked. <laughs> but, but, I mean, it's funny because I remember a game I was playing in. I think I was 15, and I was playing in a men's team, and we, I went into bat, one ball to come, one run to win, one wicket to fall, you know? And I remember as I'm going, oh, what do I do? And everyone's just shouting. There are probably 10 bits of advice. And I remember the non-striker came up to me and he goes, uh, Guess we've got to run this one, whatever happens. <laughs> so I've gone out there, and it was their opening bowler. And, you know, he comes steaming in. And I'm, I still swear to this day that the non-striker was standing next to me <laughs> when I played the shot. So, I mean, he, had, he actually ran in with the bowler. So he was running Parallel. in step with him, yeah. So that as he delivered it, he knew he was going to be, and he just accelerated. And, I mean, I should tell you, we did get the run. So I actually managed to hit a four. So there you well go. done. But it, it's, he ran all that way for nothing. <laughs> it did indeed. But the other, the, the point I was going to say as well with that is, if you look at it, most of the time, these Browns or Mancats or Barkers or Barkers <laughs> happen when it's a slow bowler. I mean, yes. I can remember one classically uh, Australia. Uh, sorry, England versus New Zealand 
1977-78 when Ewan Chatfield ran out Derek Randall. Randall was one of my heroes growing up, so I remember I was very upset by that. And so you didn't have it very often with fast bowlers. And I was looking it up coming in today. In one-day internationals, uh, Kapil Dev actually ran out Peter Kirsten in 1992-93 in Port Elizabeth. Okay. So, But other than that, in international one-day internationals and test cricket, it tends to be fast bowl, uh, slow bowlers, rather. If you're a fast bowler, you haven't... If the, you'd have to slow down that much in your delivery stride. The bats would have known what was coming, wouldn't you? It, oh, it just, yeah. The physics of it probably don't work well for fast bowlers. Exactly. And, I mean, there have been some instances where a bowler's had that opportunity. Now, Courtney Walsh was one in the West Indies. He refused to man-cab the last man, Salim Jaffer of Pakistan, in a group match at the 87 World Cup. I don't know if you remember that. Uh, he let him off with a warning, and Pakistan went on to win the match, uh, while the defeat obviously contributed to the West Indies failing to progress to the semi-final. So, I mean, if you think about that, very sporting of Courtney Walsh... Well, you know, going back to the spirit of the game stuff, one of the things people always bring up is this idea that you should give a warning. Now, that's not in the rules or the laws. So the idea that you should give a warning is more one of gentlemanly conduct than anything to do with what the the game prescribes should happen. Yeah, I mean, the Capital Dev one, interestingly, he warned Peter Kirsten the first time, and he just said, hey... And Peter Kirsten then failed to acknowledge that warning, and so the second time he took him out. And I get, I get the idea of why you should warn a batsman, mate. You're taking too many liberties, and it, I've, I can't remember ever seeing a man cad, but I've warned a player as a bowler, you're leaving the crease too early. Yeah. And the guy looked at me, and I just went back, and it didn't happen again. I think the key, the key thing that everyone's missing in this whole story, is what is the non-striker doing? They are stealing an advantage. They're trying to steal a run. And stealing, as we know, it says in the Bible, whatever religion you well, may be, thou shalt not steal, John. Yes, that's right. And don't forget the bowler can't go across that line. Yeah, if exactly. You, lose, you have to bowl another ball and give away a run. So maybe yeah. something in there for authority. Oh, maybe, yeah, a run should be deducted if they leave early, you know. Hi, this is Ian Healy, and you're listening to This Is Not The Footy Show. Well, time now for our special guest, and as I said, we're going into a different area than we've ever been before, and it's our great pleasure to catch up with a man who has become a very recognised sports cartoonist, and that is David Squires. David Squires, welcome to Not The Footy Show. Hi, Ashley. Well, I've been looking forward to catching up with you uh, because I think you're in an area of sport that few would think about being a sporting cartoonist. And I I felt I had to ask, is this something you dreamt of doing earlier on or something you fell into? Completely fell into it. Like, um, it's still a weird thing to, to tell people that I do this for a job. And um, I've been doing it for for a while now, full time. I think I started at the Guardian in 2015, but for the first, for, oh no, 2014. But for the first year, I would still had like a uh, still had a day job, and then uh, I got made redundant from the day job at the same time where um, I was offered to write a book. So things kind of fell into place there so i could you know live off live off that redundancy payment while i tried to 
you know, monetized drawing cartoons, which is ridiculous. And I've been doing this for, like I say, what, seven, nearly eight years now. And, um, yeah, I'm not sure what I'll do. If I don't do this for a job, I've completely painted myself into a corner of my career. Like, where do I go from here? Who would employ me? So, um, yeah, hopefully uh, I can keep going for a while. I think it's really interesting because, I mean, certainly we've had newspaper cartoonists, but very rare is it you've had a cartoonist that's focused purely on sport. And, I mean, let's be honest, you're predominantly on football as well, which so it's even more of a niche market. And it's a huge achievement. And I think it shows that there is a a market out there because certainly you've got a bit of a cult following nowadays. Oh, well, thank you. Yeah, and I agree. It is is odd. I think that, um, like, if you look back a century ago, there were cartoonists who would focus sort of solely on, on football and, and sport. Um, but yeah, it, as I mentioned to you just before, it's kind of a, a dying breed. Cartoonists, there, there's not many of us left. There's, uh, I mean, definitely there's some amazing political cartoonists out there. Um, but those of us who just focus on sort of single subjects like footballer, a few and far between. And long may it last because I quite like not having like tons of competition in this area. <laughs> so um I'll be pretty devastated when, when, you know, someone else comes along and steals half of my clients. <laughs> well, I want to take you back because I believe, you know, we're both Swindon Town fans for our sins, but uh, I believe yeah. that's how you got started was actually doing cartoons for the 69er, which was a fanzine. Yeah, that's right. Yeah, that was the, the first uh, cartoon I had published. I kind of always knew that I wanted to do something with art and design. And I sort of trained as an illustrator, went off to university to uh, to study that, which people might be surprised about when they look at some of my cartoons and some of the likenesses are a little bit wonky. But um, that was all, you know, there was that wasn't a marriage of text and image. That was usually just, you know, still life and uh, and then when I was at uni studying illustration, it's more sort of providing images to sit alongside someone else's text. So, um, yeah, when I started out drawing those cartoons for, for like the Swindon fanzines, that was just a, a way of expressing myself, I suppose, sort of talking about the things that my friends and I were, were discussing. And I got a real, I think I would have only, only been about 16 or 17 when, when they started publishing those in, in the fanzine and just getting a real kick from seeing my friends reading them and enjoying them and, you know, laughing at the bits that I wanted them to laugh at. Um, but really I didn't, I didn't really sort of do many more cartoons for a long time until, um, probably sort of, probably actually when I moved to Australia in 2009 and I found myself with a bit more leisure time. Um, probably because I didn't know many people. <laughs> and, um, so at that time, I didn't feel that there was, uh, much in the sports media that, um, sort of articulated the way that I felt about football. Um, really sort of thinking about the increased commercialism and the treatment of supporters and, you know, people being priced out of the game and, you know, the, the sort of, um, the bombast of the Premier League and the coverage and all the rest of it. So I started just, again, just drawing these cartoons more for myself and for my friends and 
sharing them on Facebook and then I grew a bit of a sort of following there and then put them on Twitter. And, um, you know, Twitter is, can be a terrible place as we all know, you know, ruins democracies and, you know, all the rest of it. But, um, for me personally, it helped me to grow an audience and, um, and eventually that led to the Guardian offering, offering me the, the opportunity to draw a weekly cartoon for them. So, um, and then pretty much, you know, here we are. I mean, you, you mentioned that likeness. I mean, do you find some of the people you're sort of drawing really difficult or, or is it something that again, it doesn't matter that much because it's a sort of parody of them anyway? Yeah, there's, um, there are a few who, who always gives me trouble. To be honest, it's usually the, um, sort of generically handsome <laughs> footballers who are, who are quite tricky to draw. There was a period about maybe four or five years ago when there was a trend in men's fashion for everyone to have beards and slightly sort of shaggy hair. And I'm just like, everyone looks the same. It's really hard to, <laughs> to separate them. And, um, and when I saw that Manchester United had hired uh, Eric Ten Hag, I was like, another bald guy with a beard. How am I going to make him look different to Pep? The secret I've found is just repetition. And by drawing people over and over and over again, you can eventually uh, you can get something close to a likeness that you're happy with. I think that the uh, the characters that work best for me are the ones with actually the fewest lines. So when I started out, I would probably try to draw, say, someone like Roy Hodgson and draw every sort of wrinkle and, and line in his face. But now I think I can probably draw Roy Hodgson with like 10 or 12 lines. I, I know, you know, the shape of the chin and uh, where the ears go and the eyes. And probably this, the only other one I could probably draw from, from memory would be Jose Mourinho because I've just drawn him so often now. Um, you know, I could scribble him on a napkin and be sort of pretty happy of, of how it looks. So it's just repetition. That's, that's, that's the secret to it, I think. And I mean, are you drawing on a computer or you're, you're doing it old school on, on a piece of paper? <laughs> I do it old school on a, on a piece of paper. Actually, I can show you something I was working on at the moment, which is obviously of no use in this, uh, in the <laughs> podcast format, but you can see it. So there's, oh, yeah. yep. there's a line drawing and then, I, um, I'll add some tone with, uh, toner pens, uh, and then I scan it in and then use, uh, Photoshop to, to touch a few bits up and edit the mistakes and sometimes add a bit more color if needed and a few more shadows. But yeah, generally the, the, um, the process hasn't changed from when I was 16 drawing cartoons for, <laughs> for this, for the 69er. Yeah. I mean, you, you mentioned before that you started off as an illustrator, sort of drawing for other people's words. Now where you're actually telling the story yourself and you're in complete control, is it the pictures that come to you first because I'm thinking you're a very visual man or is it the story and then you react to the words that you've written with your vision, visuals? It's, uh, it's really a combination of of both sometimes you have uh i'll have an image in mind say like um for example what's his name erling harland so he's someone who's great to to have fun with because he's such an unusual physical specimen you know so 
I'd have an I had an idea the other week of him the goal he scored against Dortmund where he Dortmund where he stretched his leg out into the air. I had this idea of him almost like firing his leg off like a missile and connecting with the ball. So then you in those cases you think, okay, that's a that's sort of quite a fun image. How can I how can I sort of uh, skew the text so that I can sort of build up to that? But often it starts with the text, um, especially if I'm trying to comment on um, on on a story, then that's where it comes from. And um, yeah, so usually text first, image second. I mean, the other thing I find interesting is reading your cartoons is you clearly know a lot of what's going on in the game. You're not just a fan. You know some of the stuff that's going on in the background because there are little things you put in occasionally that those in the know go, oh, wow, you know, he knows about that. <laughs> I've got a lot of time on my hands. <laughs> <laughs> so, I mean, like all of us um, or many of your your listeners, I guess, you know, we're all football obsessives and, you know, it's still the first thing, the first page that I open uh, online, you know, of any news newspaper or you know news website, always goes straight to the football. And again, Twitter for all its ills is really helpful with that because uh, there are things that uh, are unearthed via Twitter that I, I would probably never have discovered. So I think it would have been really difficult to have done this job, you know, 15 years ago. Um, I find that, you know, the news cycle does turn so quickly, though. So um, keeping on top of things is uh, a challenge. Um, and I know that often I've only really got 24 hours after a news story is broken that I can really comment uh, on a story, unless it's something huge. So like when England sacked Sam Allardyce after one game because he'd been caught, you know, drinking a pint of wine and... <laughs> And, you know, spilling, getting a bit loose lipped. Um, that was a story that I could, um, I could still comment on a week later. So yeah, timing is helpful. I mean, how long does it take you to produce, you know, one of your cartoons? Cause I would think it's not something you can do in a couple of hours. No, it takes, it does take a couple of days. Say so that the ones were in the Guardian, um, yeah, I start on a Monday morning and finish by, Tuesday, Tuesday afternoon. Um, in fact, the one I did this week, um, I planned in advance for, for a little while because it's an international break this week. So, um, I did something about, um, Jack Leslie, the Plymouth player from the, uh, from the 1920s. There's a statue to him going up, uh, on the 8th of October. And, uh, someone from the Jack Leslie statue fund got in contact and said oh would you be interested in doing a cartoon about him and at first I thought oh, I probably won't have time to do it but then I looked at the fixture list and saw uh yeah no uh no Premier League matches that week so it fits in quite well with the new cycle so I was able to plan that one in advance and then set that sat down on Monday to, to draw it and that took me uh 12 hours I started about eight in the morning usually like to be at my desk by eight and I finished about eight thirty in the evening, so yeah. That's if I can be disciplined and sit down and chain myself to my desk, I could do it in twelve hours. But generally, I like to give myself a bit more breathing space and sort of stew it over for a couple of days. 
Are there any sort of players that you or, or stories that you look back on and you think, oh, I really enjoyed that one? Like it was that are, are sort of moments that you think, yeah, that was great. I really nailed that. Um, let me think. Because it moves on so quickly, I forget them as well. Yeah, I was going to uh, say that's 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 the newspaper trade, isn't it? <laughs> yeah, it's, like, sometimes I worry. I, I'll produce a cartoon. I think, oh, this isn't great, you know, and. Oh, uh, you know, I'm sort of, I always worry about letting people down and I always think, oh, the readers aren't going to like this one or it's going to disappear, whatever. But then I think, actually, I can't even remember what I did last week. So, <laughs> you know, uh, I sort of uh, try to forgive myself a, a bit for those, those ones that don't quite hit the mark. The ones that I have enjoyed, I think there was one last season around the Kurt Zuma episode where he was sort of, uh, where he's found to be, you know, abusing his cats, which is a pretty dark and horrible story. But um, I, so it's quite a challenge to sort of try and comment on that in a light way. And that was the huge football story of the week as well. There wasn't anything else that I could just sort of sneak a, a reference into one panel. It was all anyone was talking about. Um, so what did I do for that? I did kind of like a cat in the hat. Doctor's use sort of parody with um, with Kurt Zuma as the you know in the league role one that was quite a fun challenge sort of trying to get the, the words to rhyme and um, I remember yeah. that one I actually that good remember one. that name you mention it yeah yeah that was uh, I enjoyed doing that just because it was a challenge and I felt it had gone well and um, yeah and doing some of those you know opening up the rhyme zone website and. Uh, you know, trying to find something that rhymes with Kurt Zuma. <laughs> I, mean, I mean, I think I actually dodged that bullet, actually. I, yeah. I was going to ask, do, do you have any restrictions on you from The Guardian or, or do they allow you? Because, I mean, obviously, I quite like it when when I see you promoting Swindon Town. It, it makes my heart beat a little bit quicker. Um, <laughs> I mean, do they sort of say, look, you can do what you like or you're only allowed so many Swindon stories a year? They, generally they they're really good and let me cover whatever store I want to um and with the Swindon stuff I those are the only ones I sort of run past my editor and say look I've got this idea and if it's a quiet week then yeah they'll they'll let me let me cover it I've done yeah a few usually actually usually when I'm planning to have a week off I'll say look I'm going on holiday or something. Can I file a cartoon early? And by the way, it's the, you know, 50th anniversary of uh, Swindon winning the, you know, Anglo-Italian yeah. Cup. That sounds like, a, you know, a, a good one. Um, and, yeah, so I do sneak a, th- a few through. And, yeah, there's a there's a few references here and there to, to Swindon players and, uh yeah. You mentioned that it wasn't a path that you were looking to go down, but you found yourself now in this situation and possibly back yourself into a corner. I've got to ask you, do you love what you do then? Uh, I would say most days I do. Some days it's, uh, I think, what the hell am I doing? Um, and I, I don't know what else I can do now. That's, <laughs> it's a worry, actually. 
I've um I recently, well, it was about six months ago, I moved to a small regional town as well in uh, in New South Wales. Um, so I'm about three and a half hours from from Sydney now. So I think, you know, I've had to change jobs. There's not really much going on here. I might have to. I'm not sure how I'd go in the mines. Um, these soft, delicate artist hands and. Uh, <laughs> Well, there were, you know, weren't there, a lot of mining artists back in the UK years ago in some of the towns, weren't there? Yeah, yeah, that's that's right. Um, yeah, actually, one of my grandfathers was a, a miner in South Wales, so maybe I'll go back to the uh, the family business. <laughs> well, look, David, uh, I don't think it's going to come to that because there's a lot of us absolutely love your work and, and what you're doing and look forward to reading your cartoons each week. But it's it's brilliant catching up with you, and thanks so much for your time. And as I say... I certainly hope you don't stop soon. Oh, thank you. I'm not planning to, so um, thanks very much. Hi, I'm Samir Dad, Olympian, hockey player. You're watching on me, not the footy show. Well, that was David Squires from The Guardian, and I must admit, I thoroughly enjoyed catching up with him and reminiscing a little bit about Swindon Town. We didn't go into it too much. And, of course, you can buy some of his cartoons via his website, which is davidsquirescartoons.com. You can go in and have a look, and there's some really good ones, actually, on his site there. And uh, interesting that he never intended John to go into yeah. to that, and he says he's backed his career into a bit of a corner now, and doesn't know what he'll do if suddenly they say we don't want you anymore. Oh, he set himself up. It's a lovely little little niche. I mean, we talked before about oh, it's sort of one of those oh, a cartoonist that'd be a great job, a sports cartoonist, great job. But you know, grass is always greener, is it? When you think about. Uh, there's a certain intensity that goes with that job about having to get your product out and within a certain time it's got to be relevant to what's going on in the so it's it, it wouldn't be the doddle that we often yeah i mean as that's... much as it would be very um satisfying and that's the thing i i, I am in awe of because as you say it, it's got to be relevant to that time there's a short window in which he can get that story out yeah. and if you think about it when you're writing something it's fairly quick you can bang that out fairly quickly he's writing something and drawing the pictures to accompany the story and that is that's to be admired i think anyway yeah definitely and uh yeah i mean it was it, i just we were going to touch about how he actually designed a couple of mascots for teams in the uk including swindon's rocking robin and he was saying to me he goes i'm amazed that they're still using it uh because we are the robins and uh he was saying that hopefully the new owner might commission him to do a new one because he goes i never got paid for the old one <laughs> or what would you still be just an updated version of the rock and robin Maybe. I think it should be an angry Robin or something. Techno tweeter. (laughs) Anyway, that's a bad joke, folks. Um, Your turn. That's a segue, bad jokes, isn't it? Hockey won. (laughs) 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 Okay. Um, Hockey won launched the other day. Oh, did it? Yes. Was there actually a launch or did it just happen? Oh, look, thing, there's been social media posts. I've know? seen very little yeah. promotion of it whatsoever. I did hear the coach of the um, Perth Thundersticks women's team uh, interviewed on local radio, local um, community radio, sports station. Um, it would have been nice if someone who knew what they were talking about conducted the interview, but nonetheless, they were on. Well, um, that's just lazy not doing the homework. Oh, uh, you know when it, after one or two questions it starts 
delving into just generic, oh, and hockey's a really growing sport, you know, stuff like that. Anyway, um, hockey won. Off with a blast uh, the other night. I think it was Tasmania, didn't they? They played in the first game. They were the second game. No, it was New South South Wales Wales Pride versus Hockey Club Melbourne were the first games. The Chalk Milks versus the Lions. Um, But the the second game uh, was the Tasmania versus, uh, I can't even remember who they were, Blaze, wasn't it? Yeah, Yeah. Brisbane Blaze. Um, And and the, the social media post did come out proclaiming the result. It was a thrilling... Win in a shootout to the home team. Wait a sec, shootouts. Um, okay, shootout happens when it's a draw. draw. So no one won, but then uh, you just I'm, get I'm a bonus confused. point, don't you? For yeah, you don't win, I don't think. Haven't you already not won to go to a shootout? And once again, this has been going on for since the FIH introduced them, the, the pro league with. But it comes down to communication, John. Is a draw not a legitimate result in a sporting contest? Yes. Why do we need to then promote someone as being a winner when they clearly didn't win because the only way they could have won the alleged shootout was to not win in the first place? And, okay, so that's one confusing aspect of But the communication, again, is so bad... Like, because everybody should be across this, it should be so clear, and when you still have people, and I believe the person that wrote that is actually on the board, aren't they, of yes, Hockey One? Yes, So that, again, makes, just, makes me tear my hair out. Just, what, what are you trying to promote, the game or the shootout? I'm starting to think that hockey administrators care more for the bloody shootout than they do for the game. Oh, we've got to have a shootout at the end. If the shootout's that important, have it after every game. So you you not only can win with your three points, you can get another bonus point by winning the shootout. I don't just have it when people aren't good enough to win. <laughs> That's what a draw is. You weren't good enough to win. You might have been good enough to not lose. A draw is a legitimate body result. Maybe it's because the season is so short and they've got to figure out ways to try and separate teams. Maybe they've done some mathematical formula and got, oh, if they have, every team has three draws, they'll all be blur. Well, how about this for an alternative? Rather than having this bloody stupid bonus point goal after you score... Oh, I'm getting to that. Okay, but before yeah. that, why don't you just go, for every goal you score, at the end of the game... You go into a shootout. So if you score three, you get three shootout opportunities to pick up three bonus points. Oh, that's uh, I that's a good idea. So if it's three-two, the other team gets two chances. You get three if you scored three. How about making games twenty minutes quarters? Yeah, twenty minute quarters. Why not thirty-five halves? Well, that's if they want the quarters, make them twenty, and then have a proper game. Get rid of all halve your rotations. Cap the rotations. Yeah, I think they should do that um, so that we see tiredness come into play. Absolutely. Fatigue is a genuine and legitimate part of sport. In fact, think of the legends that have come out of sport and fatigue was actually a factor in making that legend happen. Absolutely. 100% the, in agreement. The, the NRL um, Premiership Cup is two blokes, a statue of two blokes walking off the field, absolutely shattered, two op- opponents... Covered in mud and yep. all, and absolutely shattered, having given everything they could possibly give. And now, what do we see? We see blokes walking off and catch. Sometimes they're not even sweating, actually. 
Anyway, um, Hockey One, going back to that, what is this goal after a goal stuff? I hate, I hate it. I hate it. As, as my co-host on the reverse stick pointed out, and I did see for myself, the person scores a goal, no celebration, they have to go and do a shootout. The game stops. You don't There's even no get a replay, replay of the goal. No, I know. because they've got. And then, if they do show replays, you're missing the game because the game's restarted, and this is it. And it's just madness. Yeah, it's not thought through, in my opinion. I and think it, it distorts the contest. Yeah, oh, it does. It's a gross distortion of the contest, and it's only for field goals uh, or a penalty stroke if it's caused from a foul that was leading to a field goal. So okay. yeah, but that's another confusing aspect to it. Um, the, the, I get what they're trying to do with the Hockey One League, but all, all these rules are just crazy, and they're not helping enhance the game. It is about the contest. And what's one of the biggest things you learn in business? Keep it simple, mm. stupid. Uh, the thing that I've been really annoyed about with this Hockey One, to be honest, John, is, you know, okay, we know this is only season two. The first one was in 2019, so we didn't have one in 20 or 2021 because of the COVID, COVID pandemic, yeah. which was fair enough. But... The state associations who own the franchises made the decision, presumably it was them because they are the managing committee, or maybe it was the board, to keep the general manager, which was Tony Doddermade, employed during those two years of the COVID pandemic. So my question is, what was he doing in those two years to enhance the product from season one? Because the product was far from being a finished, classy, really impressive product. The second thing... I don't think anything starts its first year. No, it doesn't. Exactly. But you have a massive learning curve after that first year. So I'm saying, what did he do to change things? Because I haven't seen any change, really, in the professionalism of the product. Not the game, of the product. And they're always talking about it's a product now. And the other thing is, where's the marketing? And I I spoke to a, a board member who said, oh, we've got no money because of the COVID pandemic. I said, hang on a second. You've had three years to plan something, even if you've got a small budget. You can do stuff. You can leverage stuff. And there's just been nothing. I mean, the new general manager's been in, I think, since February, because Tony Doddermade left at the end of last year. But it's like, what have you been doing? And it seems to me that they've literally finished all the domestic seasons and suddenly gone, oh, wow, we better come up with something now and better try and promote it. Because they did a vodcast, and I just couldn't watch it. I found it so nauseating after probably two minutes, I turned it off. But how original. I mean, so many people are doing those. And how many people are actually now watching those sort of vodcasts with Zoom interviews? People have got bored with that. That was fine during COVID. Very few, and and this is a fact. It's not me just spouting it. Those are the viewing figures on those now are declining at a rate of knots. Most people are going away from them for that exact reason because they no longer people are like I've seen that. Well, no one's in lockdown anymore. Exactly. People have got and they expect they and they expect things to be done now the way they used to be done, more professionally. Oh, certainly. I think that um, hockey one needs a specialty program for itself, but it's got to be actually of a certain standard. But you look, John, so all the state bodies own it. All the state bodies have media managers. All the state bodies, I would presume, have marketing people. So why have they not collectively come up with something to promote this and have that, as you were going back to your shootout win, why is there not a cohesive 
message coming out from all of them? Uh, who knows? <laughs> no one can possibly answer that question, although, you know, being... Well, it comes down to management, I'm sorry. So if you're, the general manager should be pulling all of those people together and making sure that that happens. If yeah. there's, and if there's no leadership, then it is going to be a disarray the way it is at the moment. Well, I say that Hockey One should be run by an independent body, and people go, oh, well, it is. Well, no, independent. It's not. Who's it run by? Who appoints the people that run it? It's yep. not independent at all. The franchises aren't franchises. No, they're not. Not not like a fra- not like the franchise football team in an NFL team or a, a franchise ownership of a club in nothing like that. It's still the state bodies that run everything. Yeah, and they're taking the losses. <laughs> yeah, and that's another side of it. The financials. I mean, they haven't got any money. Why not? You didn't go to the pro league last year. You're not going this year. I'm still paying my Hockey Australia levy. All, every player's paying the... the oh, they're back in the, this year, the end of this year, but they just don't play a game until February. Yeah. But they've had two years of collecting their levy without actually competing in the competition. Yep. So why haven't you got any money? Yeah, and, and why have you not gone out and got money? You knew you were playing in Hockey 1, so why have you not gone out and raised money for Hockey 1? Lots of questions. And we would both agree that the one thing that, really holds back a national hockey competition of some sort is the cost involved. And it's almost primarily airfares. Now, I know there's accommodation and stuff, but why don't we for, say, three years go teams billet? If you're if if it's a, a Perth team going to Sydney, they've got a sister team that plays in the local club area and that club's going to look after you, that team, when they go there. I think that's, a, that's a brilliant idea, and I think what it spreads the hockey love amongst. Absolutely, I think um, that's a fantastic idea. And now there's certain logistical problems involved there. Yes, I get that. You know, you've got people spread out. But you can bit, manage it when you're at school. School kids, they manage it. So why can't you manage it with adults? You know? Absolutely, they school kids manage it. Now, maybe that's one way you defray costs, so that yes, we can afford this airfare component of it if we mitigate all these other costs elsewhere. Yeah, because if you look at it now, when they're going on these trips, because they're playing the games Thursdays, Fridays and Saturdays, Work. Yeah, they're not going to be able to go over there, have a training session and then play the next day. Most of them are flying in, they may have a meal in the evening, they might have a light walk in the morning and then they've got the game the following day. So if you were billeted at various places, it isn't going to make that much difference. No. You can just get to the, you could get to the ground, you know, maybe three hours, go for a bit of a walk, then have a team talk, and then get ready for the match. Yeah. Anyway, it's just... uh, I think that's a really, really good idea. I don't don't know how much time and effort they've spent in into trying to really mitigate out the costs of all this. And, you know, have they approached an airline? Do you reckon they've approached an airline and said, look, we don't want you to give us free seats, but we want a good deal because we want to f- we've got all these people that need to fly around. You can be our official carrier, blah, blah, we can work something out. It's still going to cost us money. We, we're not asking for free shit. Well, that's what I was actually saying to some, someone in another sport that, you know what, if you planned your national competition carefully, it may actually be cheaper for you to charter an aircraft and fly teams across the country back and forth and if Possibly. you if you did the planning of it so that one team flies in, the other one flies out, you could probably do it, and it would probably be cheaper in the long term. Or 
as it turns out, we've got a couple of pilots that play in the old over 50s for us. Uh, <laughs> seriously, guys that are commercial pilots. So we'll have a word to them. I'm sure Sid would love it. He'd love to fly hockey players all over the country. Yep. Well, there you go. Do so, your team talk on the plane. That's it. See ya. We'll be back next week.